It is about sharing my personal experience as a way to empower others to speak out, to advocate for change. When I think of leadership in law, it is definitely people advocating based on their personal experiences. Advocating for change is putting a personal face and a personal story on abstract issues for people. When I talk to people in a managerial role, what I say is this. The next generation of attorneys are the people you are mentoring. You should encourage everybody to bring their full selves to work every day, to a law firm, to a government office, even to a judicial chambers. We have this really exciting, empowered, and diverse class of attorneys coming up, and we should encourage them to bring that to their workplaces. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit that ensures that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. She is a regular writer and speaker about judicial accountability and has been published in numerous law journals and mainstream publications. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Aliza Schatzman. Aliza, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited for our listeners to learn about your story. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you a quick gratitude question, a little slice of life, if you will. What is your favorite thing that happened so far today? Oh, gosh. Okay. So the messaging around clerkships in the legal community is basically uniformly positive, including on social media. We are recording this episode the week before the Oscar hiring plan. So I posted this huge Twitter thread this morning talking about things to consider while clerking, counterbalance to the uniformly positive messaging. And the response has just been incredible. That's awesome. What are some of the responses that you've seen? People are saying this is such great advice, particularly people who contributed to toxic positive messaging last year. So it's good that they are retweeting and understanding their role in creating a more positive clerkship messaging. So a Twitter win is weird, but it's okay. (laughs) A Twitter win is weird, but when it happens, it shall be celebrated. It's wonderful to see that people can change, right, from your messaging and that you're making an impact. So that's awesome. Definitely. So let's get right into it because this is really important. I really would love to get into your lawyer origin story and particularly the clerkship experience that inspired the Legal Accountability Project. Sure. So I graduated from WashU Law in 2019, aspiring to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So I did four different internships at DOJ and different components to kind of get a breadth of criminal law experience, then decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch my career in that jurisdiction. The messaging around clerkships at all law schools, including at WashU Law, was just uniformly positive. I mean, I was told I'd develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship. The position would confer only professional benefits. Nobody talked about the potential downsides of clerking, the enormous power disparity, the fact that law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, The fact that judges have enormous power over their former clerks' careers, that judges are rarely disciplined for misconduct, 
So I start this clerkship in August 2019. And unfortunately, beginning just weeks into it, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable and that he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was aggressive and nasty and that I had personality issues. The day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so big day in my life, he called me into his chambers, got in my face and told me, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. This was just devastating. I mean, this is my first job out of law school. The judge seemed to be singling me out for mistreatment. I remember crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work in the morning, wanting to be reassigned to a different judge for the remainder of the clerkship. My workplace did not have an employee dispute resolution or EDR plan in place that might have enabled that to happen. I confided in some attorney mentors who advised me to stick it out. And I knew that I needed a year of work experience to be eligible for my dream job at the DCUS attorney's office. It was the reason I'd accepted this clerkship in the first place. So we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic, March, 2020. I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. And the judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up in late April of 2020, told me that he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. So I called DC courts HR and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges the judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. Then they asked me whether I knew that I was an at-will employee. So then I reached out to my law school, to WashU Law, seeking, I don't know, advice, support. Found out this judge had a history of harassing his clerks, that law school administrators, including several professors, and the clerkships director, who still works at WashU, knew about at the time I'd accepted the clerkship but had decided not to share with me, presumably because they wanted another student to clerk. So this was all obviously really devastating. I applied and interviewed for jobs, but questions were asked about why the clerkship had ended early, why the judge wasn't listed as a reference. It took me about a year to get back on my feet. I secured my dream job in the DC US attorney's office as a prosecutor and moved back to DC in the summer of 2021 intending to put all this behind me. I was two weeks into training at the USAO in July of 2021. I'd already started working there when I received some really devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. I remember crying on the phone with USAO leadership, DC courts leadership. Nobody would tell me what the judge had said. I was told the decision was final. I wouldn't be able to see or dispute the reference, even though enormous and final decisions had been made about my career. The USAO reached out and invited me to interview for another job with the office a couple days later, and then they revoked that offer too, based on the same negative reference. I was at this point two years into my legal career. This judge seemed to just have enormous power to ruin my reputation and destroy my career. So I filed a 30-page judicial complaint with the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that investigation, I found out he was on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct 
At the time, he'd filed the negative reference about me. The USAO was never alerted to those circumstances. My complaint was eventually dismissed, but we pursued private settlement negotiations through which I obtained a copy of the outrageous negative reference. And then in January 2022, pursuant to the terms of our private settlement agreement, separate from anything the judiciary can or would do for a law clerk, the former judge issued a clarifying statement addressing some but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But by then, the damage had been done. It had been way too long. And I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. I now share my experience pretty regularly in public forums. And what I always seek to underscore is that my experience is not rare, but it's one that's rarely shared publicly due to the legal community's culture of silence and fear surrounding the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to. So I have a few questions. When you started the placement process for this clerkship, did you see any red flags when you first met the judge before you accepted the position? That's a good question. Perhaps. I spoke with him for like an hour and it was an interview with his current clerks. And then I did a tour of the courthouse with the clerks, which is, as you know, part of the interview process. But it's also an opportunity to ask questions. And the two clerks said something to me like, You know, the judge likes to hire diverse clerks, people who wouldn't normally get a clerkship. And it just seemed like a strange comment. Um, So maybe, I'm not sure. When I talk to law schools now, I mean, they give this terrible advice, do your research about judges, which basically means reach out to current and former clerks to try to get information. But as we know, that accurate candidate information is often not shared by those who have it with those who need it. I reached out to a bunch of AUSAs and PDs who'd appeared before the judge because my law school didn't have an alumni network trying to connect me with former clerks. And it's outrageous to think back and realize they knew somebody else had clerked for this judge. They had information that was not shared with me. So perhaps there were some red flags, but the messaging on law school campuses, including on my own, is also very much You must accept the first clerkship you are offered. You cannot turn down a judge. This job is a necessary checkbox for your next legal job. So the headwinds, even when the red flags are flashing, are just enormously in favor of accepting the first clerkship you are offered. One of the things that you said was that the judge continuously uh, said to you that he was uncomfortable and that he felt disrespected but wouldn't go into it which is insane to me. It's something that resonates with women, probably. 100%. Yeah. So was there ever a time in which like you asked for those specifics? Did he ever give you any indication or explanation around that? I definitely asked for specifics and he would wave me away or say Mm. no. Yeah. So the judicial complaint, after everything that you had gone through, you were like, you know what? I'm going to put in this complaint and I'm going to fight. And that requires a lot of strength. And after everything, and especially someone so powerful, right, what gave you the strength to do it? I know that I would be so fearful, especially if someone with so much power, if you could share how you got to that point so that we could help others that potentially could be in that situation. I really appreciate this question. After I was fired in late April, I immediately drafted a judicial complaint. I connected with some judges and some friendly professors who directed me to the commission where I ultimately filed my complaint. So I always knew that I would do this. Most law clerks who are mistreated stay silent. The messaging in the legal community is that they should, and they're also fearful about retaliation, about reputational harm. For me, the through line about wanting to become a prosecutor is about accountability 
and punishment for those who commit misconduct. And even though I knew the headwinds were enormous and that judges are rarely disciplined, a judge who is investigated for misconduct always faces some accountability. I know from speaking with a lot of judges and knowing what the former judge went through from what we found out later is an incredibly taxing process. They need to hire an attorney. People know they're being investigated. They have to answer really tough questions. Yes, they can be evasive. Yes, they receive every single protection by these really toothless judicial conduct commissions, but it is a measure of accountability. So I always knew that I would file the complaint. What spurred me to at that moment was the revocation of my job offer and really knowing the position I was in. I initially thought it would be the best way to obtain a copy of the negative reference. It was my attorneys who ultimately helped me get the copy of the negative reference. But look, the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, they've made a couple really nasty statements about me, which compared to some of the federal judiciary statements that are made about law clerks are pretty tame, but they are just terrible. They are run by a current federal and a former DC Superior Court judge. And they really just are not interested in any kind of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. I have been interfacing with a lot of former DC clerks and they reach out to me often to say, I don't know who your judge was, but reading your public testimony, that could have been a dozen judges. So there is really no accountability in the DC courts. <laughs> so I tried to infuse a measure of accountability, got to start somewhere. Um, but look, I speak publicly a lot now, and most law clerks don't want to or can't. And one of my ultimate goals is to empower more people to speak candidly about their negative experiences. That's the first step toward changing the culture and empowering others to seek accountability. But I, it's important to me that people know that it's empowering every time I speak out. And I feel like I achieve additional accountability every time I share my experience. So let's get into that. Let's talk about the Legal Accountability Project and let's talk about what you do, how you help. Yeah. So during the summer of 2021, when I was going through the judicial misconduct investigation, I became aware of the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JA. That is proposed legislation that would extend Title VII protections to the federal judiciary, including law clerks and federal public defenders. Outrageously, folks like me with experiences like mine cannot sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. So I reached out to House and Senate offices to share my experience and advocate for the legislation. And then in March 2022, a House Judiciary hearing happened, and I was invited to submit written testimony sharing my experience, advocating for the legislation. And in the weeks following that, the response was very positive, which I appreciated because I know previous law clerks who've spoken out have not experienced such support. And so I began thinking about ways to further my advocacy work on behalf of law clerks. And so I eventually launched a legal accountability project in June 2022 to correct injustices I personally experienced, including a lack of transparency in the clerkship application process, that causes far too many new attorneys each year to unwittingly enter unsafe work environments because they lack information about judges, a lack of diversity in the clerkship applicant pool, judiciary and legal profession, and an outrageous lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. So the Legal Accountability Project seeks to ensure that law clerks, new attorneys, have a positive clerkship experience, then extend support and resources to those who do not. We work on a couple major initiatives in collaboration with law schools, bar associations, law firms, judges, and other stakeholders. 
And they're really premised on this basic fact pattern. I speak with a lot of law students now and I'll say, so you want a clerk? Fantastic. You should definitely clerk. How would you avoid judges who harass their clerks? Well, some students say they'd ask somebody. Who are you going to ask? Law school clerkship directors and deans of career services love telling students to do their research about judges. What research are you going to do when no information is available to students about judges who mistreat their clerks? Very little is even available about the excellent judges to apply to. There's just a real dearth of information period. I'm curious about that. What about post-clerkship surveys that law schools conduct from alumni? A handful of law schools, primarily in the T14, conduct a post-clerkship survey of their alums. They understand that these do not capture the scope of the problems I talk about because law clerks who've experienced mistreatment are just notoriously unwilling to share that with their law schools. And the tone of some of these post-clerkship surveys is basically... You had a positive clerkship experience, right? What I say to law schools is that nobody has a monopoly on information about judges. No law school knows about all the judges. Yet every single school, whether you go to a T5 or a regional school, has a ceiling on the number of judges they know about, which is totally dependent on, one, who their alums have clerked for in the past, and two, their willingness to share information with their law schools, which, as we just discussed, They are not, meaning law school's information about judges is incomplete at best. Makes sense. So what we're doing at the Legal Accountability Project is democratizing information about judges as managers and clerkship experiences through our centralized clerkships database, ensuring that law students have as much information about as many judges as possible before they make what's clearly a really important career decision. Our post-clerkship survey asks a variety of questions students want to know about before clerking. Mistreatment is definitely something we seek to capture in a way law schools troublingly do not. But there's other stuff you might want to know before clerking. How judges provide feedback, whether you get writing experience, courtroom experience, how many co-clerks you'll have, whether you can take vacation, what the judge's relationship is like with their current clerks, like normal stuff you might want to know, stuff you'd get to know if you pursued other private or public sector employment. So we are asking law schools that partner with us to send our survey via email to their law clerk alumni. Law clerks create an account with LAP, and then they can report anonymously on their clerkship if they choose. What we're already seeing is that law clerks who've experienced mistreatment tend to report anonymously. The option to report anonymously, as well as the centralized nature of this database, vastly increase the breadth and candor of information accessible not only to students considering a clerkship, but also to clerkship directors and deans, advising students on the process, making everybody's job and life easier and better. So how does this work? Like, who is responsible for the costs associated with leveraging this platform? It is a subscription model. So in the fall, when this goes live, law schools will pay a small subscription fee, $5 per student per year, based on total JD enrollment. And in exchange, students get access to reading all the survey responses. But so importantly... Students don't just read their survey responses, which is the existing model. You go to a T5 with a robust alumni network, you get some info about judges, you don't, you won't. Rather, they can read the survey responses of every single former clerk who submitted. This is the best way to ensure positive clerkship experiences and to diversify the clerkship applicant pool because it is historically marginalized groups who disproportionately lack access to the formal networks and information channels that help some of their peers get clerkships. 
One of the things that you said earlier was that there is this culture in law schools where you have to accept your first clerkship that you're offered. What happens if someone has done their research, finds out that this judge is not for them? How does that work if they're pushed to accept first position they get? So that's a good question. So I really think of the database as having a couple different use cases. Some people will research every single judge they're applying to as they create a judge list of 50 or 100 judges. They will go into the process with the confidence that they know where they want to clerk. Got it. There's another use case, which I think is where we're going to prevent a lot of mistreatment. And that is people who indiscriminately apply to 50 or 100 judges. They don't slash can't do their research. Then they get an interview. Now on 48 hours notice, they're going to hop a plane or hop a Zoom and they're going to interview and they're going to be pressured to accept that first clerkship. They can sit there and read all the survey responses about one judge and they can know a couple things. The right questions to ask of the judge, questions to ask of the current clerks, questions to ask of law clerk alumni from their school, and they can know that they're going to ask for more time or turn the clerkship down. Now, the headwinds are very strong in favor of accepting that first clerkship, but obviously it's not a rule. It's an unwritten rule. But what I try to tell law schools is that they need to stop giving that advice. I think some have backtracked and we hope more will. And it's important to have judges out there with that same messaging that you do not need to accept the first clerkship you are offered. It's about empowering students with information, recognizing the headwinds are very strongly in favor of opacity. And um, something I try to combat every time I talk about this. So we've talked greatly about the transparency portion, where you're trying to create more transparency, both through the law schools providing these surveys, but also the career services staff being more aware of what's going on so they could better advise law students. You also talked about two other portions of the Legal Accountability Project, the other two being the diversity pool as well as actual accountability. Can you speak to both of those two other things as well? Sure. So the clerkship applicant pool is notoriously homogenous, very white, very male. The National Association for Law Placement releases data every couple of years. And I think NALP's 2019 data show that 79% of law clerks were white males, something really crazy. These groups disproportionately lack access to the formal networks and information channels that help some of their peers obtain clerkships. This is non-white, female, first-gen LGBTQ students, but it's also diversity defined much more broadly, veteran status, disability, political, geographic. A lot of these groups come into law school not knowing very much about clerkships, and they also have unique considerations when deciding whether and where to clerk, including whether judges hire diverse candidates and are sensitive to diverse identities. Around the time of our launch, I started getting a lot of questions, particularly from LGBTQ students. It was Pride Month when we launched last year, asking who the LGBTQ-friendly judges are to apply to. We still get a lot of those questions. So that is data we hope to have. Look, some people know going into law school they want a clerk. Those are disproportionately people who are not first-gen, who have attorneys in the family, who might have judges in the family. And they'll clerk regardless, but they can use our database to seek better clerkships. And then there are people who don't know very much at all, and what they need is information. There are some other nonprofits who work on diversifying the legal profession and the clerkship applicant pool, and they do important work as well. But 
Transparency particularly benefits historically marginalized groups. And while some people will want a mentor, while some people will want other things, everybody wants access to information. And many students tell me that their deans and clerkship director are not really sensitive to their diverse identities. They don't want to go sit there with the white male professor or clerkships director and talk about being an LGBTQ black female applicant. What they want to do is go into the database and get their own information and make their own decisions. That does not foreclose the clerkship director from becoming increasingly informed, and I think they all should. But some students don't feel comfortable, and their options are either don't apply or apply blindly and maybe face mistreatment that maybe derails their careers. And I think that is a real loss for the profession. That truly is a real loss for the profession. And this just like further strengthens why access to this information just really helps and transparency around it just really helps. Thank you for that. So let's get into the accountability part. Tell me about how that works. So our database does not foreclose really important legislative and policy changes that need to be made throughout the federal judiciary. That is extending Title VII to the judiciary that is changes to the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which is the federal judicial complaint process, that is changes to the Employee Dispute Resolution or EDR plan. The latter two are currently run by other judges, and judges are just notoriously unwilling to self-police. Attempts at internal self-policing lead to a lack of policing, a lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks. So those are all really big changes. Those are going to take a long time. I imagine I'll be doing that advocacy work for many years. There are a couple ways that our database increases accountability. And the database is not the only thing that LAP does. It's just the big focus this year for me. I expected we'd do some other initiatives as well, but this is going to be the big one. So law students will know who the judges are who mistreat their clerks. They will, I hope, I pray, stop applying to those judges. Some judges are going to receive better, more diverse applicants. Some judges, less so. This is going to be a red flag to those judges who cannot look at our database. The database is for students and young alums. It's not for reporters. It's not for judges. But judges are aware of the database and generally supportive. Now, those judges will realize they're getting fewer applicants. Between that and pressure from their judiciary leadership, circuit executive, chief judge, Perhaps that will encourage them to change their behavior. We hope that it will. That is how I think that this is related to the accountability piece. But like I said earlier, it is empowering for those who've experienced mistreatment to share their experiences. It is some measure of accountability for them as well. They are perhaps sharing their negative experience for the first time. So the anonymity piece, how are these uh, surveys kept anonymous? Great question. So when people create an account with the Legal Accountability Project, they provide their name, their law school affiliation, class year, and an email address and password. They go through several security steps to create an account so we can verify they are who they say they are. And they also go through our terms of use and our privacy policy. Now, once law clerks submit a survey response, if their law school is participating, their law school's clerkship director and deans get dashboard verification privileges. They can go in and confirm this is a, a graduate of our law school. They clerk for who they say they did. They do not read individual survey responses attached to human names. They read the anonymized versions in the database like students. 
if the law school is not yet partnering with us, the onus is on me to confirm the person's identity. So there is an optional last page of demographic and other questions. And one question is, do you want your name to be visible to students considering this clerkship? We are seeing that the folks talking about their positive experiences are more than happy to share their name. The ones who've experienced mistreatment, not so much. So the default is anonymity. And this is really important because the fear of retaliation, the fear of reputational harm in the legal community is what has thus far precluded law clerks who experience mistreatment from sharing that information, definitely with their law schools, but troublingly, even with the individual law students who reach out seeking information. I routinely hear from mistreated clerks who say, I went through several rounds of outreach before anyone would share candidly with me. When they found out I was harassed a year later, they reached back out and apologized for not being truthful with me. There is a real culture of silence and fear. And this really starts on law school campuses with the clerkship director, with the deans, telling students the right professional decision is not to report, that you should stay silent, that most people want to keep their heads down and move on, that a toxic or challenging clerkship is worth it for the prestige. That is such dangerous messaging that law schools are giving students and they need to stop. So the anonymity, just so I can get it clear, is basically these individuals, if their law schools are participating, they go through a sign-up process and the law school is making sure and verifying that this is the person that they say that they are. And then they actually see a bunch of surveys that are anonymous. So they're not, they're unable to see anything where someone has checked off they don't want to be seen. That's correct. The anonymity piece is so important because at the handful of law schools that conduct a post-clerkship survey and do some sort of internal database, law clerks are not anonymous, meaning it's one reason why most of the survey responses are glowingly positive and some might just say, contact me, but nobody says anything negative. And also for those law school databases, judges can go in and read the responses further precluding people from sharing any negative experiences. So we thought long and hard about the anonymity piece, and we landed on this would increase the breadth and candor of responses. If a law school is not participating, can law students still have access to the Legal Accountability Project? So we do anticipate that we will have individual subscribers. It will cost more than $5 per student per year. We're maintaining legal tech and it is expensive. Um, I visited about 30 law schools this year for programming to share my experience, talk about the scope of the problem and propose solutions, including our resources. The programming was partially to galvanize student support for our initiatives. And what we really saw was a groundswell of really impressive student advocacy. Law students meeting with their clerkship directors and deans, petitions, sign-on letters, explaining why this is important. So we are hoping that between students and alumni and judiciary support and professor support from all the places, we will get some of these law schools on board. So we ultimately will have individual student subscribers, but I really think that law schools should pay to subscribe. Uh, Law schools don't love me saying this, but I say it anyway. They have historically been part of the problem funneling students into clerkships they know or suspect are bad in order to fluff their reputations. They should be the first to step forward and make changes, including monetary changes to ensure positive clerkship experiences. 
they not only push clerkships on students while refusing to give them transparent information, but then they tout their clerkship numbers and they say, this is a gold star. This is a necessary checkbox. You can't simultaneously say this is something you must do, but not provide the information necessary for people to do it. Great. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I want to get into our rapid fire questions before we end. So, Eliza, what does leadership in law mean to you? Oh, gosh. So for me, it is about sharing my personal experience as a way to empower others to speak out, to advocate for change. When I think of leadership in law, it is definitely people advocating based on their personal experiences, including some of the awesome people you've had on this podcast previously. Advocating for change is putting a personal face and a personal story on abstract issues for people. So great answer. Great question. (laughs) What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Oh, I love this question too. The biggest misconception about LAP's work is that judges oppose it. We have received enormous support from judges, and we're going to make some exciting announcements about that very soon. Judges support LAP's database and our work generally for a couple reasons. They understand that transparency benefits both judges and clerks, helping everybody identify a good fit. They also understand this is going to diversify the clerkship applicant pool, helping them get better, more diverse applicants. It's wonderful that you have so much support from the judiciary. It's important. It's an important piece of making sure that this works for sure. You know, it's important. It was a little unexpected and I really appreciate it. And I think it's important to underscore because law school clerkship directors and deans, one of their first questions is always about judiciary support. And I worry that these law schools are more focused on their relationships with every single judge, including the ones known to mistreat their clerks over their duty of care to all of their students. And we have a lot of judges reaching out to their alma maters and schools from which they hire to convey support. It should be a red flag if judges oppose this, if they think they are above being reviewed, if they think that their chamber's culture and their conduct as managers should be secret. Yes. So if there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? The one is the messaging around clerkships. That is the one thing I would change. We have created a culture of toxic positive messaging, lionizing judges. We need to treat judges as managers and clerkships as jobs like any other. So it's really about the messaging because the messaging right now tells law clerks who face mistreatment that they are alone and it is enormously isolating. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. When I talk to people in a managerial role, like law firm partners or like the top prosecutor or PD in an office, what I say is this. The next generation of attorneys are the people you are mentoring. And when you see a negative reference or a lukewarm reference from a judge, you should interrogate that. You should believe and affirm clerks and encourage everybody to bring their full selves to work every day even to a law firm, even to a government office, even to a judicial chambers. We have this really exciting, empowered, and diverse class of attorneys coming up, and we should encourage them to bring that to their workplaces. Final question. What do you do for self-care? I work out every day. I'm on the elliptical in the basement of my building, despite the fact that they don't have cable. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Eliza, for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out, learn more about the Legal Accountability Project, or just get some advice from you, what's the best way they can connect with you? 
So our website is legalaccountabilityproject.org. So people can go there to join our mailing list, support us, learn more. They can email me or they can reach out to me on Twitter at Elisa Schatzman or the LAP is our Twitter account for the Legal Accountability Project or on LinkedIn. I post about these issues every single day. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.